Join us for Captain's Campaign for Cures. If you plan to attend Vive or Hims this year, get a photo with Captain, our lovable service dog, and we will donate to Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation to find cures for childhood cancer. For every person in the photo, we will donate $1 to Alex's Lemonade Stand. All you have to do is find Captain, grab your friends, take a picture, share it on social media, and put the hashtag Captain Lemonade or This Week Health, and we will make that donation for every person who's in that picture. Our thanks to SureTest and CTG for helping us to end childhood cancer. Today on This Week Health. Our current methodology of interoperability, it's all about sending copies of data around. What I look forward to is a future state where the data just stays where it is. And instead of bringing the data in to whatever user and trying to make a copy and then work with it, that you bring the algorithm to the data. Welcome to Town Hall, a show hosted by leaders on the front lines with interviews of people making things happen in healthcare with technology. My name is Bill Russell, the creator of This Week Health, a set of channels and events dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. We've been making podcasts that amplify great thinking to propel healthcare forward for over five years. And we want to thank our show sponsors who helped make this happen. Armis, First Health Advisors, Meditech, Transparent, and You Perform. We thank them for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Now, on to our show. Well, welcome back. Again, I'm Brett Oliver, CMIO for Baptist Health, and I'm pleased to have my friend and colleague today with me, Stephen Lane. Stephen is a family physician and informaticist at Sutter Health, and I want to make sure I get this right, Stephen. He serves on the Clinical Informatics Director for Privacy, Information Security, and Interoperability. Where I met Stephen is on the Federal High Tech Committee. He has co-chaired its interoperability standards group and steering committee for the chair for care quality as well. Stephen, you've got a laundry list of involvement in the interoperability world that would be the envy of any anybody's career. But I'm curious, number one, I want to welcome you to the program, but I'm curious too, how did you get involved in all this? I've never asked you that. Well, thank you, Brad. And it's a, really a pleasure to be here and to join you in this conversation. So I, as you can tell by my garb, I am indeed a practicing uh, primary care doctor. I just had clinic this morning. And I really got into informatics because I wanted to be a better doctor. Back when I was a, a resident many moons ago, it became quickly clear to me that we kind of needed all the help we could get. And when I became an academic faculty member, I was at a big university hospital, UCSF in San Francisco. And I was attending on the wards in medicine and pediatrics. I was delivering babies. I was doing all this stuff. And as a family doc, I, I really felt like it was hard to keep up with all of these more focused specialists. But I, I knew it was all there in the textbooks. So we had all the information. I just needed it to come to me in real time at the point of care so that I could do the best thing I could for my patients. So that's really what got me interested. And it started me down a, a wonderful journey. You know, I was not intending to be become an informaticist. There was no such thing as informatics back then. And I wasn't really much of a geek. I mean, I was sort of an early adopter of technology. But beyond that, I trained in cognitive science in undergrad and studied public health and did a lot of neuroscience, but wasn't planning on doing technology stuff at all. But as I got into it, I realized how powerful it could be. So this is way back in the 1980s. And when I got out and I was early attending, I went down into the basement and talked to the people in the computer room 
room and I said, hey, how can we make this computer work better for us providers up on the wards? And they were very enthusiastic. And then I ended up leaving academia after a few years and coming to my current practice 30 years ago here at Sutter Health. And it was interesting because I walked in the door and they said, what color carpet do you want in your office? And what, how do you want the furniture arranged? And I said, none of that matters. I just need a computer on my desktop. And they said, well, what would a doctor do with a computer? No way. Yeah. So that was like my welcome to my practice 30 years ago. What would a doctor do with a computer? So obviously a lot has changed since then, but we quickly helped our organization figure out that doctors had a lot to do with computers. We implemented the first electronic medical record in the ambulatory setting in California, which I think was like the third Epic install in the country. And we managed to put up the first patient portal, the first MyChart instance now 21 years ago. And my first EMR use was actually when I was moonlighting and the emergency department at a Kaiser in San Francisco. And that was ages ago. And they had a homegrown Mac-based system. And it just made so much sense to me that you'd write your notes in a computer where you could actually go back and find them and you could actually analyze them. them and read them. Right, exactly. So I got very involved in the electronic medical record, as we called it back then. We didn't think about it as broadly as the electronic health record. And in fact, my Twitter handle is EMRDoc1 because uh, I was one of the first docs to use an, an EMR as we called them then. And then, you know, after 15, 20 years of implementing and optimizing and rolling out and integrating electronic health records, I got involved in interoperability. And that was really the dawn of interoperability when we were just starting to be able to share data between systems. And I got involved in that locally, trying to share data between my practice and Stanford Hospital, which is literally right across the street. That's where we used to admit all of our patients. And then got involved regionally as more and more folks were standing up EMRs and we could start to see what the value of that that would be, and then at a statewide level. And then like you, I got myself appointed onto the Health IT Advisory Committee at the federal level. And I'd done a, a number of other things along the way nationally. There was this thing called the Certification Commission for Health IT, the CCHIT that I was involved in probably 15 plus, maybe 20 years ago now. And so I've really enjoyed over the years being able to both be an end user in my practice day to day using the tools and then also working regionally and nationally to try to improve the situation. And I think interoperability, when that started to become an opportunity for us, it was very exciting to me because in my practice, we don't have a hospital connected to my practice. So all of my patients go to other hospitals, be it Stanford or others in the surrounding area. So interoperability is critical in terms of those transitions of care. But I also practice in a vibrant urban area. I'm right in Silicon Valley where my patients come and go and they travel and they're very international. So there's a real need to be able to access and utilize data from all sorts of different sources. So interoperability really made sense to me as a focus area on top of the earlier work, just getting EMRs implemented in the first place. And now, as you and I both know, the opportunities are huge. I mean, we've moved into this era of big data and analytics and machine learning and all of the different sources of digital health data. There's so much more work to do. And I think those who come behind us in the informatics space are going to have lots of wonderful problems to solve. But for right now, I'm happy trying to improve the access, exchange, and use of health data. My motto is get the right data in front of the right person at the right time in the right format and with the right supporting workflows. And if we can do that, we're going to have a major positive impact on health. 
We'll get back to our show in just a minute. Everyday families worldwide receive devastating news. A child they love has cancer. From that moment, a whirlwind of fear, uncertainty, and challenges begins, marking the start of a journey that no family should have to endure. The stark reality is that childhood cancer impacts over 400,000 families globally each year. But there is a way for you and I to stand up and foster change, transform lives, and give children a fighting chance against this devastating disease, a way to give hope. This Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, which is September, we invite you to stand up with This Week Health in supporting Alex's Lemonade Stand, a beacon of hope in this fight against childhood cancer. Celebrating our fifth year, we set out with an ambitious goal to raise $50,000, and you did not disappoint. Our community has exceeded that goal. Here in September, we are up over the $50,000 mark. We believe we can do even more because we know that every donation, big or small, brings a spark of hope to those families and a possibility for a brighter and healthier future for a child with cancer. We ask you to join the movement. Visit thisweekhealth.com today and click on Alex's Lemonade Stand logo. It's in the top right-hand column. Become a part of our community and a community that believes in the future free from childhood cancer. Now, back to our show. I agree, agree. Well said, well said. Well, jumping kind of right into that interoperability piece, ONC has stated, I believe it's part of the Cures Act, a number of times that I've heard publicly that TEFCA, Trust Exchange Framework, is to work in concert with privately, the private sector, things that are already stood up. Using sort of care quality, because I know you're familiar, obviously, with that organization and that structure. As an example, practically speaking, how do you see these two working together moving forward? Are they each filling certain roles? Do you see them significant overlap? And then from a provider's perspective, what's the average non-informaticist think about, well, am I supposed to connect here or there? Or how do I get the information that I need? Well, that's a whole bundle of questions wrapped yeah, into right. one. So okay. let me go back and un- unwrap that, that present a little bit. So what is care quality, first of all? The idea, if we go back, rewind to the beginning of interoperability, right? What we had was direct connections between organizations that wanted to exchange data. And those, many of those took the form of just V2 interfaces, HL7, a basic data exchange. And then we started leveraging the CCDA, the Consolidated Clinical Document Architecture and the exchange of documents. And we started to develop networks that, that allowed those documents to be exchanged between stakeholders. So most of those networks started out as uh, networks of opportunity. You either had people who were trying to do a particular thing, like deal with pharmacy information, or people who were using the same vendor, like the Epic community, or folks who needed to exchange amongst and with the federal partners, the VA, DODs, the eHealth Exchange. So we saw grow up a number of these networks, the Commonwealth Network that a lot of people are familiar with, that Cerner started to help facilitate their exchange with other vendors. So there was quite a number years, we had all these networks, but there wasn't exchange between the networks. It was kind of like back in the days when you had a cell phone and you could call other people who had the same cell phone vendor, but uh, but you couldn't call other people or the banking, the ATM, where you had to go to an ATM that had the right logo on it or your card wasn't going to work. So the idea 
of care equality was to create a framework, much as the banking and the telecom industries did, that would allow these networks to interoperate between them. So it's sort of a higher level interoperability. And care equality was the first to, to that game. And it was a, a private, it came out of private industry with the support of the feds. But then when 21st Century Cures came along, the, what it said in the law was that the ONC would either identify and support or create a framework to do this work. So the ONC had a critical choice to, to make, which was, are we going to sort of look to care equality as the established evolving interoperability framework that allows networks to connect to one another, or were they gonna do something new? And what they decided to do for better or for worse is to do something new. So that's what TEFCA is. So TEFCA is basically meant to do what care equality is already doing, but with a heavy involvement of the feds to make sure that it's doing that in a way that satisfies all of the identified needs. So it's interesting. So as you're saying, there's now these two parallel processes, right? There's the private sector initiative, which was care equality, and it's blasting along. I mean, we're seeing increasing exchange. We're seeing increasing use cases. So it's doing all the things that you would want to happen. But we now also have TEFCA coming up, which is going to do pretty much all the same things and perhaps more. I mean, it, given the approach that we've been able to take to TEFCA with the various published versions and the public feedback and then the iteration, it, it's clearly coming out a little different. But now, as you say, we're trying to figure out, well, how are these going to coexist and for how long and how will a stakeholder, you mentioned providers, but I mean, any stakeholder, payers, public health, et cetera, how do we figure out where the data is going to go? And I think it's, frankly, it's going to be a little awkward at first. I think we're still trying to figure that out. And we're literally in active dialogue between the Care Equality and the Sequoia Project Act as the RCE, the Recognized Coordinating Entity, and then those same organizations are also acting to support the existing framework. So kind of trying to figure out how do you keep all the wheels moving in the right direction as we sort this out. As you well know, TEFCA participation is initially meant to be voluntary. So there has to be a reason for people to go there. And we're talking about people, we're talking about sort of the end users, the connections, but also the QHINs. The, the folks who are going to be QHINs are already networks. They're already connected to the existing framework. So how are they going to manage their traffic? And, uh, and it's tricky. There's a lot of subtle business decisions that need to be made because there's some cost involved in participation in either one of the frameworks. The costs to be involved in TEFCA are actually going to probably be substantially higher than the costs to be involved in care equality because of some of the requirements that have been introduced along the way. So we're going to see. The idea is that there are going to be QHINs identified this year, that they're going to soon be opening the application process. There will be an analysis that It'll be done. And there are clearly a number of organizations who are very enthusiastic about being named either the first or one of the first class of QHINs. So that's going to take a little time. But theoretically, if all of it goes well, there will actually be QHINs onboarded this year. I, it seems pretty right. hopeful to me, yeah. given how things move. But I would say within the next year, I'm pretty confident that there will be at least two QHINs up and running and they'll have the opportunity to exchange data. And there'll be folks who are already exchanging data via the care quality framework. So what data, 
what stakeholders, what use cases are going to move over is going to be interesting. I mean, certainly one of the things we've learned in care quality is that we've stood up a lot of implementation guides and use cases, and the private industry has not necessarily made a lot of use of those. We've got patient queries, for example. Clearly, individual access services under TEFCA has been highlighted as a very important use case, but we don't have much use of that within care equality, in part because I think many of the participants already have EHRs that have patient portals. A lot of the need for patient access to data is being satisfied today by other technology, but I think I agree that you, sh you should be able to support patient access. And there's clearly a lot of patient data access needs that are not being well met by the current community or combination of services that are out there. So I think that's going to be great. But that's a great example of something that we've made available via care quality. There hasn't been a lot of uptake. TEFCA is very enthusiastic about it. So that would be a great thing for TEFCA to sort of pick up and run with. And then there's the whole question of how are we making this transition from clinical document architecture, CCDA exchange, to FHIR-based exchange. Clearly, lots of incentives towards the use of FHIR for various stakeholders, various use cases. Can we see some of that move more quickly on the TEFCA front or on the care quality front? I mean, I don't think it's really clear at this point. TEFCA is starting with CDA-based exchange, but they have a roadmap to move towards FHIR. And the care quality side, we're about to come up, I think, with our second version of the FHIR implementation guide. So that could move more quickly. And of course, there's there are a number of care quality implementers who have really done a lot of work to support FHIR-based exchange, especially the new CMS requirements of payers to make data available for query using FHIR-based APIs. So it's a fascinating world that we live in. There are a lot of really smart people. There's a lot of investment that's been made to bring products to market, but then sort of how does, how does it fit into the framework, as you say? I mean, I think if Tefka is successful, I think it will be because at some point it's going to go from voluntary to required. And I would predict that that's going to be a move by CDC and or CMS to basically say, look, We've gone to all this trouble to stand up this TEFCA. We've got all this exchange that we need to do, be it quality measures in CMS, be it public health reporting, et cetera. So it seems like one of the feds or multiple fed partners are going to say, look, just use TEFCA for this. And at first it'll be an option and then it'll be an incentivized option. And then eventually it'll be the requirement. But you and I both know that that, that could take years, that transition. So what's gonna happen between now and then, between the time that TEFCA is entirely voluntary to the time that it really is required. I think CMS and CDC both have great levers to pull. We all have to do reporting to CMS. We all have to interchange with them. It just makes sense to me that they would move in that direction. But we first, we have to get TEFCA up and running and successful, you know, and get a year or two of experience under its belt, I think, before we can really say we see the path forward with this. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a, a bit of the build the plane while we're flying uh, as we're going here with, with interoperability. Mm -hmm. I wanted to shift gears a little bit and still talking about interoperability, but with interoperability, as you and I see in the office, this increasing amount of data that's exchanged. Some of it's incredibly helpful. Some of it's not. Some of it's duplicative. It's of low value, at least to us as end users. And that's all I can speak to. 
Do you think technology might be the answer here? Or is it a, from the standpoint of, for instance, maybe Epic says, hey, as an organization, you can deem these diagnoses as low value and we'll automatically delete those coming in. Or is it a workflow issue? You know, what I see oftentimes is a busy clinician doesn't have time that, and there's 10 outside problems, 10 outside medications that need to be reconciled. What happens? It either, they're too busy, they ignore it and just builds up or accept all or delete all. There's not a careful curation. I mean, just to be transparent, there's not a careful curation oftentimes of that. So that leads to what? A bad problem list, a bad med list that's not, and it, it sort of compounds itself. So while I definitely wholeheartedly agree with the importance of exchange of information, I'm wondering, some of this hasn't been thought through yet. And I'm wondering what maybe what other things you see out there that are like that potentially happening, but do you think that technology has a role there or is this a, we've got to get some of the burden off the end users so they can look at these lists and take care of them more appropriately. Yeah. I mean, I really think it's both and you've really hit the nail on the head. I, I remember the first time I, I put together a slide for a presentation that said drowning in data and the whirlpool and the doctor in the middle with all this junk coming at them. And it's still kind of like that, as you say, I mean, we spent so many years building the connections, starting to get the data to flow, automating those processes. And now it's happening. But as you say, the catcher's mitt has just gotten bigger and bigger and the tools have not kept up there. To me, there's a number of obvious solutions that we need to do. One is we need to put the patient at the center. We need to make sure that the patient can see their data and that they have the opportunity to curate their own list, whether it be the problem list, the medication list, the allergy list, the care team list, or the medical history. What you and I do in the office, interviewing a patient and teasing all of this out over the course of 30 to 60 minutes, the patient can do at home, at least some patients, right? I mean, infants can't and people with dementia can't, but a lot of people really, certainly at what I've learned over 30 years in this practice is people care. People care about you having their story straight. So I think engaging the patient in that process is key. The other, of course, is better tools, as you say, to do deduplication, to identify things that are either identical or nearly identical. And I think that there, the tool set that we're going to need to draw on is really machine learning. I think that whether it's at the level of the individual clinician, sort of how do I do that, or at the level of a practice or a group or an organization to say, here's all this data coming at us. A lot of it is duplicative. Some of it is is duplicative plus. It's like I have heart failure and somebody else knows that it's right-sided heart failure or diastolic heart failure. So the idea of sort of upgrading conditions. I knew they had a cholecystectomy in 2020, but somebody else knows that they had a laparoscopic cholecystectomy on January 3rd of 2022. And, you know, then, you know, that that sort of thing shouldn't be up to us as providers. I mean, the, the PCPs and the hospitalists of the world have come to hate us us because of how much work it is. And we all go into this work because we sort of have OCD and we care and we believe in this. And especially those of us in informatics really believe in the value of accurate, complete data, right? But there's a huge cost. As we were discussing earlier, I mean, I'm up till midnight every night making sure my patient's charts are accurate and complete. And when I get a, a transition of care message, I actually look at it and I see what their diagnoses were and what their dates of admission were and what their discharge meds were. And that takes a huge amount 
amount of time. And it's really, I mean, even when you've got care teams and advanced practice nurses and people, it's just, it's really hard to do well. So I think we need to figure out how to do that better. And you mentioned Epic, the large EHR vendor. I don't think that the large EHR vendors can do this. I think that these are very specialized services that all of us are going to need as patients, as providers, as healthcare organizations. And I think that as we finally get there with fire and with interoperability, I think that we're going to see the development of these services as standalone. We're going to do this really well. We're going to do MedRec, or we're going to do whatever it is, keep track of the immunizations so that it's not on the backs of somebody who went to X number of years of medical school to do that kind of really clerical work to sort that out. So I think some combination of AIML built on broad access to information, being able to sort of say, this is what you've got. This is what we found out in the universe. This is what it looks like the combination of those should be. What do you think? Yes, that looks good to me, right? I can modify it as needed because you have to keep the patient safety question in your, you know, sometimes there's bad data out there, right? So there still needs to be, I think for the most part, some human intervention. But if you have machine learning working in the background, it can see, it can learn what it is that you do, again, as an individual or as a group, and do that better and better. And then, as I said, patient empowerment, let the patient see what all this is. And then they can catch errors too. Patients say, no, no, I didn't, you know, it wasn't my left breast that was removed, it was my right breast. And we all know about the challenges of inaccuracies that get into the record that then getting promulgated. So I think it's going to get better. Is it going to be on the backs of humans? Yes, for a while. Is it going to be technology that needs to be developed? Yes, absolutely. We'll get back to our show in just a minute. Our monthly leader series webinars has been a huge success. We had close to 300 people sign up for our September webinar, and we are at it again in October. We are going to talk about interoperability from a possibility standpoint. We talk a lot about what you need to do and that kind of stuff. This time we're going to talk about, hey, what's the future look like in a world where interoperability, where data, where information flows freely? And we're going to do that on October 5th at 1 o'clock Eastern time, 10 o'clock Pacific time. We're going to talk about solutions. We're going to share experiences. We're going to talk about patient-centric care and see what we can find out. We have three great leaders on this webinar. Mickey Tripathi with the ONC, Marianne Yeager, Sequoia Project, and Anish Chopra, who I'm just going to call an interoperability evangelist, which is what he has been to me ever since I met him about 10 years ago. Don't miss this one. Register today at thisweekhealth.com. Now, back to our show. Let me just follow up that last piece just with a final question with some of the data not being good or being accurate or changes. You get a CBC on you and guess what? It turns out a week later, there was something wrong with the machine. It gets recalibrated and an updated CBC result happens. Well, maybe it's clinically important. Maybe it's not. What is my obligation for anyone that's accessed that data downstream? How do we prevent those errors from being propagated? That's a, that's one that I've seen in reality that really didn't have any clinical impact because it was your MCV was off by one two and it didn't, didn't change your outcome. Right. But you know, some of it does, if it's a, a seizure medication that's listed on in could affect your insurability and things like that. And I see from the inside of the EHR companies, I see them struggle with this just in terms of what's the process. Do you feel like organizations have those processes in place right now? Does technology play a role in that? Any thoughts just to 
finish this up on the data quality piece that you mentioned, because I do think that that's obviously critical if you're going to be exchanging. Yeah, well, I mean, we could talk data quality for days, but I think the specific issue of corrections to errors is really important. And it's one that we don't have solved by a long shot. Often users of, of the technology will see an error and may or may not take the time or have the means to to report it or correct it. Right? right, exactly. So I think realistically more often than not, I mean, we see errors, if you will, in problem lists and med lists, but I mean, mostly those are more tweaks. I mean, it's rare to see something that's truly wrong. It's more that it's been modified, it's been changed, it's been discontinued, et cetera. So we fix those kinds of errors all the time. But some of those more subtle errors, I think it's really the patient who is in the best position to identify those. And there's not a, yet a standardized way to deal with that. And I've heard from many patients and patient advocates about the frustration that they feel where something will have been entered erroneously in one place. And now with interoperability, the, as we said, that gets propagated across an expanse of users. There is work being done on a fire-based technology for patients to be able to at least request corrections. It wouldn't actually make the corrections, but it's a request. And this came up through our interoperability standards standards work group, and we're actually going to be making a specific recommendation next week to the high tech and onto ONC for that particular use case to be supported and tracked in the interoperability standards advisory and eventually in US CDI if that were appropriate. But it's really not a US CDI issue, but it really is, it's a workflow issue. And as you say, it can be very complicated, right? It's, so it's not just the going to the source of the information, but who else has seen that information? Who else has had that information transmitted to them? What are the processes for chasing that down and trying to repair an error in all of the relevant places where that data exists? And that really gets you back to provenance. I mean, how are we going to technologically keep track of the provenance of data. And I'm going to turn this to another area that I'm really interested in, which is our current methodology of interoperability. It's all about sending copies of data around. And it's all about having a copy of the data wherever it is that you're going to apply your your tools, whether it's your human thought, whether it's your algorithm, whatever it is, your decision support, it's all about looking at the data that I have in my system, which is variably accurate, variably complete, variably up to date, right? Depending on all of this connectivity and whatnot. What I look forward to is a future state where the data just stays where it is. And instead of bringing the data in to whatever user and trying to make a copy and then work with it, that you bring the, as I say, bring the algorithm to the data, leave the data at the source, whether it's the laboratory, whether it's the clinician, whether it's the imaging center, whether it's the patient themselves, the payer, et cetera. And as much as possible, stop making copies. Stop trying to create this mythical longitudinal record that is going to, we're all going to be the holy grail here. And all of the privacy and security problems that come up when we're shipping data around and the storage challenges that, that come up when, when I have to keep my DICOM image or my, or my genetic file in multiple systems, it, it's crazy, right? I mean, leave it where it is and then let's figure out a way using all this great interoperability to find this, the data that's needed in a, for a given decision instantaneously, 
do your processing, make your decision, document whatever you're going to do, and then move on. And to me, where we're getting with Web3 technologies, with crypto, with blockchain, those are the tools that are going to allow us to get there, that are going to allow us to get from where we are, which is incredible, right? We put in EMRs, we put in interoperability, we can move billions of documents and, and data bits around the system, but it's not really scalable. I mean, when you think about all of that health data, when you think about wearable data, when you think about genomics, proteomics, microbiomics, you think about patient-generated data, and you think about all of the healthcare peripheral data, patients' activity data, shopping data, I mean, sleep data, I mean, it goes on and on. And if we're really going to be able to impact health as we want to, right, we know the huge impact of social determinants of health. We know the huge impact of lifestyle and, and all the you know, climate, don't even get me started, right? I mean, so, so there's so many types of data that we'll need to integrate and we're not gonna do it by downloading it all into our local EHR and expecting our EHR vendor to, to chew through it and give us meaningful decision support. So I think this shifting paradigm leaving the data where it is and bringing it together to process in real time, I think is going to be a huge change. And then, as I said before, the idea that we can't expect any vendor, even a large international multi-billion dollar EHR vendor to be able to do everything. So you're, we're going to need to really see a thousand flowers bloom across an app ecosystem where you've got folks who are focused and able to deliver reliable tools for the specific needs, whether you're a subspecialty clinician, whether you're a social worker, whether you're an acupuncturist. I mean, truly, there are so many people who need to interact with our health data, and none of them really needs all of it, right? Because that's just not, except for the AI. The AI needs all of it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Very well said. It's an exciting sort of future that you paint. I think that makes so much more sense than continuing to push around copies. And as we mentioned before, with the data quality, worrying about where that copy ends up, keep it here. If it gets adjusted, then you're going to get the most up-to-date information when you query it. How we get there? I'll leave to the smarter people, but hey, listen, Stephen, it's been a pleasure. It's awesome talking with you. I thank you for all the work you do for your patients, the work that you've done both state and nationally on interoperability and trying to improve things for patients, providers, everybody in our healthcare ecosystem. We'll have to have you back because we just feel like we're just getting started here. So There's lots to talk about. It's great to see yeah, you, Brad. Thank Thanks you so a lot. Much. All right. Take care. I love this show. I love hearing what workers and leaders on the front lines are doing. And we want to thank our hosts who continue to support the community by developing this great content. If you want to support This Week Health, the best way to do that is to let someone else know that you are listening to the show and clue them into it. We have two channels, as you know, This Week Health Conference and This Week Health Newsroom. You can check them out today and you can find them wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find them on our website, thisweekhealth.com and subscribe there as well. We also want to thank our show partners, Armis, First Health Advisors, Meditech, Transparent, and You Perform for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.